Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The ISIS bombing at a wedding in Kabul this weekend was big and shocking. 63 people died, 200 were injured. The U.S. ambassador currently negotiating with the Taliban, Zalmay Khalilzad, says a deal with the Taliban may enable the Afghan government to better combat the threat posed by ISIS. Let's talk about what a peace deal may and may not be able to accomplish. With me is Najala Ayubi. She is a human rights activist, an attorney, and former judge in Afghanistan, and is the founder and executive board member of the Women's Regional Network of Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, and India. Thanks for joining us again, Najala. Thank you for having me, and uh, good afternoon. I wanted to kind of test what was happening with uh, the peace talks in Afghanistan, because here the U.S. ambassador says, well, if we get this peace deal done, the Afghan government and the uh, Taliban are going to team up and they're going to fight ISIS. But, you know, at the same time, uh, I heard from the Afghan president and read some of his remarks, and he seemed to almost blame the Taliban for providing a platform, blamed Pakistan, one of the Taliban supporters, for uh, providing a platform, and, you know, didn't seem to be on the same page with <laughs> Zalmay Khalilzad's uh, comments. Uh, what did you make of what, what's going on there? Um, uh, thank you for for the question. And and um, to be honest, uh, uh, this is the the big problem uh, in my opinion, and particularly in our opinion uh, back home, uh, that there is no um, healthy or a clear coordination among the authorities or the parties here. Like for instance. Um, the U.S. government or the U.S. representative is talking to the Taliban, but uh, the other side of the peace talk should be Afghan government, which they are not on the same page, uh, as you said also. But at the same time, um, it would be a good um, um, a good uh, policy or a strategy if the uh, the uh, the U.S. government and the Afghan government and also the other actors that um, regionally that they could put their own efforts as a as a um, as a one strategy to talk to the Taliban compared to uh, each one of them. Like if the Afghan government don't have an agreement of. Uh, putting their own interest and their own talks onto the table, how did that peace talks would lead us? I don't think we we will have a, a, a stable peace or at least a stable peace negotiation with the Taliban if the, some of the parties who have the grievances for uh, over decades of war in Afghanistan could be uh, could bring a, a peace to Afghanistan. And at the you same know, time, the rise of... Sorry. You know, it seems like Zalman Khalilzad's idea, though, is uh, that we're going to, you know, cut this withdrawal ceasefire deal with the Taliban, just the U.S. and the Taliban, and then we're going to turn things over to the Afghan government, and there's going to be uh, inclusion with uh, women's organizations and things like that. Uh, it, does that sound like you know, you're getting to what you want, that you you would end up having a pretty fulsome negotiation as long as you get the violence off the table first? Um, I think uh, 
that can be a good uh, strategy, but as far as this is short-term solution, I don't think this is a this is a good idea of not including because, uh, as I mentioned in many many uh, other uh, other times in the past too, that if we had if we were included Taliban in the Buna agreement at the first place, I think we were we were not. Uh, uh, in this situation currently that we are in, so if you are talking about the uh, talking about the uh, power sharing later, the the peace agreement in the ceasefire and the the reduction of violence should be uh, included all the parties because Afghan government is uh, part of the uh, part of the conflict as well because they are defending Afghan people and at the same time the the US is also. From my perspective, it's more on talking with the Taliban is on the interest of the U.S. withdrawal compared to the Afghan government. Because in uh, bringing the peace uh, in short term probably may benefit for the short term. But if you're talking about the decades of war and ending decades of war, we have to include uh, all the parties. And uh, in my opinion, I think um, the the um, the the power sharing is definitely a, 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 a later stage, but if you're not talking about the uh, values and about the um, interest of each parties, I don't think there will be uh, there will be a, a long term solution to it. So you're in essence criticizing the Trump administration for wanting to get this deal done before the next re-election campaign in the U.S., which a lot of people have been talking about? Um, I think it's it's not about criticizing the government here. Uh, my opinion is that there is not enough situation analysis um, about the uh, peace processes or the conflict in Afghanistan because we are having a short-term strategies all the time in the past 18 years of involvement in Afghanistan, and also not only the U.S. government, but also U.S. Um, uh, allies also, that we don't have a coordinated long-term strategy how we destroy the sanctions of the terrorist, ter- terrorism in the region. Particularly, we don't have a, um, I'm not talking about all of us, I'm talking about all of us, uh, including the the human rights activists, the civil society, the media, the uh, U.S. government, the Afghan government, the, uh, the U.S. alliance, and also the, pe- the actors in the region, that we don't have the counterterrorism uh, clear strategy, not only regionally, but also globally, because Afghanistan now can be a very, uh, a very secure sanction for the ISIS as the situation is involving um, uh, the peace talks involving the Taliban. Um, in my opinion, uh, I think U.S. government should um, look more carefully about uh, anal- analyzing the situation compared to going ahead, one step ahead forward to, to bring the peace in Afghanistan. Unless we are not putting, putting efforts to, to, to solve the grievances at the first place. I'm talking with Najala Ayubi. She is a human rights activist, and she is the founder and executive board member of the Women's Regional Network of Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India. Uh, and I wanted to ask you what um, about women's uh, rights in the negotiations, but um, 
before we get to that, I mean, what is a if we were if we had a long term strategy uh, for counterterrorism in Afghanistan and uh, we're, we're bringing that to the negotiations, what, what does that look like? I mean, how does that, what would that be? Would that mean that other regional governments were involved in the negotiations? Would it be so, it such a broad-based thing to, as to be kind of a, uh, comprehensive but maybe a little unwieldy? Um, I think, yes. Uh, at, at the first place, because we have uh, a very potential or very important actors in the region, like India is very, now you see that the, when we get to, uh, like the U.S. get very closer to the peace agreement with the Taliban, the Kashmir issues is rising up. And the, the ISS is making their potential efforts or their uh, huge attacks in Kabul in, in two days. Uh, because we, there is, seems to be, um, I think the terrorism, the terrorists, they have a very clear internal, internal um, uh, terrorism strategy, how to rise if one power or one terrorism terrorist groups are failing how the other could rise compared to them we don't have that strategy we have to involve the people who support the isis who bring like uh, based on my knowledge we have people coming from india fighting in afghanistan as a isis um isis sorry um uh, bangladesh india chechenia uh, Central Asian uh, countries, of of course, the Uzbekistan is leading. Uh, Iran, of course, have a lots of efforts, a lots of uh, hands. Russia definitely, because Russia is losing, and at the same time, if the the we are not involving, in, we are not having a very comprehensive or a very detailed um, uh, discussions uh, within the region and globally. It's very. Uh, that's why I think it it will be a failing strategy again. But from the women's perspective, we as a women's regional network, we have a we started uh, a campaign when the peace negotiation started with the uh, with the U.S. government with the Taliban. We started a media and advocacy campaign in the U.S. and also in the U.K., Germany, and we are trying in Canada and as well. We are trying to how we build up the global coalition of. Uh, supporting Afghan women and women in the region to be um, to be not not lose their gains in the past 18 years of um, of involvement of international community in Afghanistan. So hopefully this will be part of our work is that how we can educate um, authorities here in the U.S. Also in the in Canada, uh, U.K. and how we get support from the parliament from uh, from the powerful people who can be influencing the peace talks or the peace agreement on on behalf of Afghan women. What's your greatest fear about uh, the negotiations? Because it, the Taliban of today does not seem like the Taliban of yesteryear. They said in February there was a statement where they said they recognize that women have certain rights under Islam, including access to education, jobs, property inheritance, the ability to choose a husband, that sounds like they've come a long way. Is that um, how does that sound to you? Um, I think, uh, based on my talk with my colleagues back home, um, 
It is. They also have expressed that the Taliban has changed. But which type of Taliban we are talking here? Because we don't have, do we have a, a, one, a one united address of Taliban here that we are talking, uh, leaders or uh, grassroots Taliban, or we are talking about different type of Taliban in different, because like there are a, a, a div- division between the Taliban groups as well. There is Taliban, Pakistani Taliban and Afghan Taliban. And most of the attacks were carried out by like recently by by Pakistani Taliban who are who are just coming in fighting, uh, fighting foreign troops. But instead that they are in instead of fighting foreign troops or Afghan forces, they are they are attacking the, the civilians. So one of my point is here that which Taliban we are talking about, which Taliban we are involving in the coming power, whether those are the ones that they are also having the same opinion and they have changed also over years, or we are talking about the Taliban that they is still the same or maybe become more um, conservative or more um, more aggressive compared to the, the time that they were in the power. So that's a big question. Uh, is the same question true of the government? Because some people I've talked to on the show have said, well, you know what, women's rights aren't that great all over government-controlled Afghanistan either. Uh, outside exactly. of Kabul, it's not so terrific. They're n- not doing so well either. Uh, how? It, it's, it's something that's kind of uh, more universal. Exactly. I, I do agree with your point, and I do agree that the woman, um, the woman uh, 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 rights, it, it is not advanced in Afghanistan, and it's very, very at the basic rule still with all of these gains that we have. But at least with the government, we can talk with the government people. We, though we know that there are a very, this is a patriarchal society. This is a, a society where everything is, um, every blame is against women. Even the last, the before yesterday attack in the wedding hall, they blamed that the, the bride didn't brought the, the lack to the wedding. Can you imagine? This is everything is blamed on women. So we are living in a patriarchal society, in a society where the people are, not, uh, I mean, who is com- uh, who is um, who is in the government? The people from the society, the people from the from those mentalities coming to the to the government. So at least with the with the government, at least we can talk. At least we can go and put it, uh, efforts, even if it's not going anywhere. But at least our presence are important. And my big fear is that we will lose even this. A small opportunity that at least we can talk, we can express ourselves, because I have been lived under the Taliban for uh, for five to six years, and it was not uh, an ideal, or even even it was below ideal, or it was below any anything that I could I could experience in my life. So that's my fear that our generation, our new generation, our coming generation will face the same. 
Well, uh, we'll keep an eye on what's going on with the peace talks. And thanks for joining us, Najala Ayubi, a human rights activist, lawyer, and former judge in Afghanistan. She's the founder and executive board member of the Women's Regional Network of Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India. Thanks very much for joining us and talking about the peace talks and women's rights in Afghanistan. Thank you so much for having me and have a good day. up after the break, we'll talk about the Black Vests movements in France. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've probably heard about the Yellow Vest movement in France. Their protests over a carbon tax shook things up last year. This year, another group is looking to shake things up that you might not have heard about. They're called the Gilles Noir. They are the Black Vest movement in France, and they want to shake up how France deals with its immigration issues. And we're going to hear from Doc right now. He's a Malian undocumented immigrant in France, and he's part of the Gilles Noir movement. Je suis Jacques, je suis de nationalité malienne, je suis venu en France aux environs de 2013. I'm Duck, I'm Malian, I came to France around 2013, so I've been here for about six years. I've made many requests for papers, and each time I have the same problem. The French state tells me my documents are rejected, it goes like this all the time. So we decided to make a movement to reclaim our rights, to make the French state give us what it has to give us. We live in this country, we work, even without papers we work under the table. We actually say all the time that we are French. We aren't foreigners because in our own home countries we speak French. That's the language we learn at school. So we're obliged to be French. We also did an action at the Pantheon, the huge establishment that the whole world respects. We also respect it, but we went to occupy it to denounce the profanations that the French state commits to our brothers and sisters that die in the Mediterranean, that nobody is talking about. If there's one person that dies in France, the whole country aids them. But our brothers and sisters die every day in the sea, and the French state does nothing. That profanation is what we went to denounce at the Pantheon. These people dying in the Mediterranean like their countries. They want to stay there. But nobody can stay because France leaves us nothing. It takes everything for itself. The country has created wars. It's killed thousands of people. We in Africa don't make arms and we don't make bombs. Arms come to us and kill us every day, day and night, all coming from France. 
French businesses pillage Africa in collaboration with African states. They're corrupt, but who educated these leaders? They have French educations, and France showed them nothing but how to steal and kill their compatriots. These people can't stay in their countries. They're simply looking to survive, to escape to security in Europe. That's why they leave, not for pleasure, but to come to Europe because they don't have any choices and there are no avenues for success. That's the sounds of the protests at the Pantheon, and before that, Doc, a Malian undocumented immigrant in France. Let's talk about the Black Vest movement now with Miriam Tickton. She is an associate professor of anthropology at the New School for Social Research and the author of Casualties of Care, Immigration and the Politics of Humanitarianism in France. Thanks for joining us, Miriam Tickton. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I think it, just from the sound of the name of the organization, Black Vest, people would think, well, this is a new organization. But it sounds like it's been something with uh, that immigrants have been active for years and are now just kind of coalescing it differently. Can you give us a little background on the Black Vest movement and where it was coming from? Yes, absolutely. And what you just said is, I think, exactly right. Um, the Gilets Noirs or the Black Vests have called themselves that for about two years, or um, but they are an incarnation of what has been a very long set of movements for immigrant rights. Um, I mean, that have been happening in France since um, since kind of the decolonial period in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and perhaps the kind of the closest one is the Sans-Papier movement, um, which was at its height in the 1990s. Um, and it, you know, really uh, made a huge um, impact in France. It kind of ended up pushing a change in government. Uh, it was a call for human rights for all those who were undocumented. Um, and then it went a little bit uh, underground. It was it was co-opted, um, and various um, amnesties happened, um, and everybody else was put in prison or deported. So this is a uh, yeah the latest um, the latest manifestation. Now it sounds like their demand is papers for everyone. What does papers for everyone mean? Yeah, so that just means, um, you know, citizenship papers or papers to work, to live, a right to, to social services, to health care, and so on for everyone. So if you live on the territory, you should have the same rights as everybody else. Is that realistic? I do think it's realistic. Um, I think uh, – I, I think that these people are already contributing to society and always, as, as we heard in the clip, they work, they work incredible hours, they pay taxes, um, and uh, they contribute to society in all those ways. So the question of why they wouldn't also be able to benefit from those very basic rights um, is the issue. I think we in the U.S. bring our own context to immigration issues. And in France, there's a whole different kind of context about French identity and what it means to be French. And um, how does that play in here? Because I, I think the – it sounds like the Blackfist movement wants to really restructure what it – what, you know, French – colonial attitudes and identity mm. attitudes and bring bring a whole new thinking to the table. 
Yeah, I think, again, yeah, exactly. I think um, in some ways it's not so different from the U.S., but we can get to that. I mean, the the issue in France, of course, is that it has a an ideology of Republican universalism. So the idea is that everybody is equal under the law and that you need to be able to be the same in public. So you don't foreground your differences in public, your religious differences, your ethnic differences. You, those things are all in the private and everything else is in the public. So, um, you know, equality is, is for um, – is the public sphere is for ple- people to interact in a similar way with each other. Um, so linguistic differences, all those in the in the private. And in the U.S., that's quite different, obviously. In the U.S., we accept, you know, it's a melting pot. People come in and can can bring whatever they want with. So this is, yes, yeah, sorry. I mean, French, they, they don't keep a lot of statistics on um, people's differences because they're all supposed to be the same. Exactly. And in fact, it goes further than that, that you are not allowed to talk about race. Race is not um, is in the Constitution, has been recently taken out of the French Constitution. There is no such thing as race in France officially. Um, and that, you know, this, the reason for that is, I think, post-Nazi era, there was a belief that if we talk about race, we're going to reinforce racism. We're going to reinforce the idea that there are biological differences between people and therefore hierarchies between people. So they took it out. Um, and banned any any collection of statistics or any idea of based on race with the idea that this is racist. Of course, this doesn't allow us to deal with the very real forms of racism that exist. <laughs> right. I mean, how can it can the Blackfest movement turn that to its advantage, though, in some way? That you know, if there is equality and everyone is equal, can we um, can we have that? <laughs> Yes, exactly. And they're pointing to kind of the contradiction at the heart, I think, of the French political system, which is that you want equality and universalism, but you don't recognize when there are differences in power um, and differences in treatment. Um, And so, you know, universal, this idea of universalism was built while colonialism was underway. So it's inherently contradictory. Um, And, you know, the racism has been built into the French Republic. So these, the, the Gilets Noirs are, are taking it head on. They're saying, hey, listen, just a second here. Um, you know, we have contributed to the French Republic in all kinds of ways with our bodies. Many of them are, come from backgrounds of what they call the tirailleurs, who are the soldiers who fought for France in World War I, World War II. Um, you know, we've given our bodies, we've given our land, we've given our resources, and somehow we're still not treated as equal. I'm talking with Miriam Tickton from the New School for Social Research. She's the author of Casualties of Care, Immigration, and the Politics of Humanitarianism in France. And we're talking about the Gilets Gilets Noirs, the Black Vest Movement in France. It's uh, a group of uh, immigrants, undocumented immigrants in France who are banding together for demanding their rights. How dangerous is it for them to do this kind of thing? Because I would think that um, coming out in public and demanding your rights and making yourself mm-hmm. known. Obviously, the person we played Doc one had used a pseudonym and uh, mm-hmm. has, has kind of created something so that he can speak out. Is this something where um, people are going to get deported for being activists? Yes, that's a again a great question. I 
I think, of course, the power comes in numbers and working collectively and working together. And the more visible they are, in some senses, the more protected they can be. So people are watching, people are witnessing, people are saying, okay, this is going on, we're going to we're going to have your back. So that's part of the strategy, which is to come out, you know, out from the shadows, as it were, and to show that they're here, they're working, and they're being mistreated. Um, that, that said, there's not, there's huge risks. I mean, um, you know, first of all, there was police violence after, you know, these various occupations of the Pantheon when, when they were also in the, um, in the airport in Charles de Gaulle. And, uh, you know, you can see videos online of them being um, brutalized by the police. So there's very, very, you know, immediate physical danger. Many of them were taken and held in detention after that. And yes, I think they are very likely to be targeted for deportation as well. So they are putting everything on the line. And they have lawyered up, essentially. They have attorneys who come with them to these protests, and uh, they're aware and are combating the, the dangers that they face. They are. They are. I mean, part of the movement is that you know, they don't want people speaking for them. So they have people there in support and in solidarity. But I think the thing that is the, their huge strength is that they're speaking for themselves. They're not being represented by an NGO. They're not being represented by activists. They are working with, um, you know, they're speaking for themselves and working with the people they choose to work with. Can any French government in the current political climate uh – give them what they want and still expect to be successful in future elections? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, as we know, all over, not just all over Europe, but all over the world, anti-immigrant sentiment is is on the rise and it's incredibly violent. So, but on the other hand, I think there are stronger movements than ever before for the rights of people to move, right, to cross borders, to live where they want to live and to get treated with dignity and humanity. Um, so I, I don't think it's unheard of. I think these movements are – it's not accidental that this is coming out and that they are coming out in strength now. And I think it's because people are fed up. Um, they're living in situations that are untenable, just like the gilet, uh, the gilet jaune, the yellow vests. Um, so I think it's a moment of actual upheaval where things that we might not have thought uh, were possible before, for instance, you know, recognizing immigrant rights, recognizing that borders are actually permeable already, that we don't have, you know, that walls don't work. I think that it's a moment actually where people are realizing that this is true and being open to different ways of doing things. So the it, the definition of success in for these guys would be um, what, what exactly do they do they get their papers? Yeah, I think that for you know in the immediate sense they get their papers. Um, um, in a lo- but they work both kind of in the um, immediate sense and in a long term sense, which would be also to get France to address its history of colonialism and racism, um, and to take those forms of discrimination seriously. So uh, you know I think it's a multi pronged and and um, kind of uh, movement that has different goals. Uh, you know, again, I think the difference here is these these people want their papers, but they want papers for everyone and they want equal rights for everyone. I, I don't think it's, um, you know, they're limiting to themselves. And I think, again, the difference between this movement maybe and the ones that have happened that occurred previously are that they are, are fighting in a broader sense against, um, you know, against racism, against sexism, against kind of the form of republicanism that treats some people as as less than human. Do you see this having a 
greater effect in in kind of expanding to Europe and and the United States, or if this is a universal movement, a universal idea, is is this going to work? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the Sans Papier movement in the 1990s did spread. It spread all over Europe and it spread to the United States. So I do think that France is a, is, is a place where these things do get started and spread and uh, from there. So I do think that is true. But I, I, I also think in the United States, the sanctuary movement, for instance, and movements for open borders in other places are already um, playing and kind of working with each other and strategizing with each other. Um, you know, as we know, in the democratic debates, people are talking about um, giving rights to immigrants all over them, that, you know, that they should have the right to health care, the right to education. Right. So I think that's a similar kind of a of an idea. Right. Miriam Tickton is with the New School for Social Research and is the author of Casualties of Care, Immigration and the Politics of Humanitarianism in France. Thanks for joining me and talking about the Chine Noir, the Black Vest Movement in France. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll have Food Mondays with Monica Eng, and we'll talk a bit about bread. So stay tuned. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Earlier this year, Chicago baker Greg Wade won the National James Beard Award for Outstanding Baker. It was to honor the deliciousness of the bread he bakes up at Publican Quality Bread. But Worldview contributor Monica Eng recently talked to him about the praise his bread is getting for something else, sustainability and health. Thanks, Jerome. I recently biked over to Publican Quality Bread on Lake Street. There, Wade was leading a team making baguettes, brioche, and especially his signature long-fermented, multi-grain sourdough bread. Then we walked up to an office near the kitchen and talked about how he began making bread, how he started working with Chef Paul Kahn, and why so many people who thought they couldn't eat bread can eat his. Greg, how did you get into baking? Uh, I kind of fell into it. I was uh, going to culinary school for the savory program, and I always had a passion for bread. Growing up, I was baking bread with my dad on the weekends. He wanted something to connect over, so I was like, oh, why don't we get out my grandma's old bread machine and make bread, and we did. Um, Looking back, it was probably terrible bread, (laughs) but it was fun. It was something that brought us together. And then in culinary school, I was going for the savory program, and I actually never took a bread class. I, I, I took one baking and pastry class, and... It was like cakes and muffins and cookies and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once I started working in restaurants, I still did bread as a passion project. And And when you say bread, any particular type? So I was at Taksim, which which we used tons of pita bread. It's a Greek restaurant. Um, But then I started doing more like naturally leavened and long fermented bread there too, as just like components of dishes and things like that. 
And uh, that's where I met Jan Rickroll, who was the chef de cuisine that was going to open up uh, Girl and the Goat with Stephanie Eiser. So he left Taxim to go open that up, and he just brought me with. And I baked everything in the wood fire oven there. And it was just this really high-intensity, high-volume, high-expectation sort of place. And so I just, like, hit the ground running and really fell in love with the craft. And then they built Little Goat, which had a, a small bakery in it, and then learned that Paul was opening up publican bread or wanted to do a wholesale bakery and i was like well i'm on board for that so came over here and uh, you know it's been five years now so you're kind of self-taught even though you went to culinary school your bread stuff has been learning as you go yes wow okay so if you haven't had greg wade's bread it's incredible here and i think a lot of chicago knows that but what a lot of chicago doesn't know is that a lot of people who have noticed that they really feel uncomfortable after eating bread are able to eat long fermented breads often with local organic grain that use natural starters have you seen this too Absolutely, like 100%. So the really reason that uh, I think that this is happening is because, you know, the commodity commercial wheat system is really chemically dependent, and it's really kind of broken. There's a lot of pesticides and herbicides and fungicides and things like that sprayed on the land and on the crop while it's growing. And then for especially large factory farms, what they do to help with ease of harvest is they just spray Roundup all over the wheat. So wheat is a non-GMO crop, which means it's not Roundup ready, which is a good thing, except for that they go and spray Roundup on it to kill it. So instead of naturally waiting for the wheat to dry in the field, uh, they just spray, spray Roundup on it, which is glyphosate, which is a whole, you know. There are a bunch of lawsuits happening right now around <laughs> glyphosate where they're giving millions of dollars to plaintiffs. So whether or not you want that on your finished wheat is uh, starting to come into a lot of questions, especially right. legally. Right. So a uh, lot of implications there. So from there, this chemically grown and and harvested wheat goes to a commercial mill. And what the mill will do is, one, you know, turn the grain into powder, obviously. Um, But they'll also add things like dough preservatives and dough conditioners. I just want to say, this is a working kitchen, so you're going to hear working sounds. (laughs) Okay, so dough conditioners. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So yeah, dough conditioners and and things like that, which make the the dough slide down factory bakery machines really easy. Uh, But something that they add is called calcium sulfate, and that is what adds that kind of texture to the dough. But it's also what's used to make tile grout. So, you know, you've got this chemically grown wheat, and then you add things like tile grout to it and um, different preservatives and enrichment and things like that. And then a factory bakery gets a hold of it. So we've got two very large missteps followed by another very large misstep by the baker. And what that is is that they don't ferment their bread. So the longer that the bread sits in the bakery as dough, the more money it costs because it's just sitting there. So for them, it's a non-value-added step. Uh, what that means is that all of the complex sugars, and essentially white flour, is all complex sugar. It's just carbohydrates. None of that gets fermented out. And, and it just completely spikes your blood sugar as well. Um, so, you know, the, the whole thing is kind of broken from planting and growing to harvesting to milling to factory bakery production. All of it is broken. So compare that to the way that we make bread, where we take organic or transitionally organic grown wheat. That's our main flour. 
And then we, all, we add organically grown, really nice local farm grains. The local farms that we're using, we're picking varieties of grain that are flavor forward, which again is very unique. So we're building flavor that way. We're also you know, using the whole kernel of the grain, which means that all the nutrients are still in it. Um, you've got a bunch of fiber from the bran, you've got a bunch of minerals, you've got a bunch of um, fatty acids from the germ and things like that. So all that's still in the bread, which is great. And then we uh, ferment it for 60 hours. So uh, I recently read a, a scientific study that says that those FODMAPs, those fermentable complex sugars, which give you IBS, are reduced by like 90 to 95% after just four hours of fermentation. Go 60 hours. Go 60 that. hours, and we're hopefully cutting it pretty close, you know? <laughs> so we're, we're converting all of those complex sugars into simple sugars. We're using wheat that is not chemically grown or chemically dependent, where nothing is added to it at the mill, and then we're fermenting it for a long time. So what that ultimately ends up meaning is it's a very nutritious product, and because sourdough starter one has an enzyme in it called phytase, it breaks down phytic acid. Phytic acid is a nutrient blocker in your system. So by having a sourdough starter, sour leaven bread, you're able to absorb all the nutrients in a product. Mm-hmm. Sourdough starter also produces things called branched-chain amino acids, and that regulates uh, sugar intake in your system. So, like, it regulates your blood sugar. Right. So, uh, my my sister-in-law, she just had her first child uh, just over a year ago, and when she was pregnant, she had um, pregnancy diabetes. Gestational diabetes. Okay. Yeah. Gestational. I had it too. <laughs> so um, she was testing her blood sugar regularly. And just for grins, I was like, you know, hey, here, have some bread. Can you test your blood sugar regularly? And Because she already was. And she said that I had absolutely no spike in my, my blood sugar. So what we have with this tile of bread, and there's, there's plenty of bakers around the country doing it this way, and it's, which is a really, really fantastic thing to see, is that we're taking really nice wheat, we're fermenting it, um, so it's not only flavorful, but it's nutrient dense. All those nutrients are able to be absorbed into our system, and it's not just a carb bomb, you know. Yeah. So and it's not being dried out with glyphosate, right? Yeah. Um, so all of those things, I think, lead up to a very not only delicious product, but also a product that is, is very healthy for us, you know. Well, I'll be talking to some scientists a little down the way um, who are trying to pinpoint which one of these factors, or maybe it's all of them together are causing these people who said, no way, I can't eat bread, get super sick, to be able to eat this stuff. When people tell me that, I like 100% believe them. Some of those things happen to me when I eat bad bread. But it's just that I think that you're eating the wrong bread, you know. So, so you know, it's just like the, the local food movement where, you know, you go to a farmer's market where you're talking to the farmer. Hey, how do you, how do you grow your produce? Talk to your baker. How do you make this bread? And we'll tell you, you know, we're usually... You know, just lifting 50-pound bags of flour and up late at night, so we like people to talk to. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, just talk to your baker and ask them, where do you get your wheat from? Like, how do you ferment it? You know, things like that. And, you know, you can build some trust that way, I think. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Monica Eng, and I'm talking to publican quality bread baker Greg Wade. You know, the, the farmer's market movement has been going on for a while, but there's this new grain movement where people are looking at Artisan Grains, the Artisan Grains Collaborative. Uh, so I'm actually the chair of the steering committee for the Okay, grain. there we go. So what it is is uh, a group of plant breeders, millers, uh, farmers, bakers, investors. Uh, now we have communications folks. We have educators all working towards a better, stronger, more resilient regional grain system. You know, we've got a bunch of different programming from classes on how to use these whole grains for both professionals and consumers. 
can find those on the Grain Collaborative website. Um, right now, what we do is we have plant breeders breeding varieties of wheat and rye and things like that for uh, farmers in our area. So we've got different soil types, we've got different environmental conditions. They're trying to breed plants that are going to be successful in those conditions. The farmers then plant those and have trial plots and things like that. We then send the grain once it's harvested. The, uh, the farmer will track um, environmental conditions and soil types and things like that. So we have some, some kind of background data. We send the grain to the University of Illinois Extension, which we were able to fund a grain testing facility being built there. And that will give us all the scientific data about the flour itself. So bakers like myself, we look at these things and say, okay, I'm going to add this much water and I'm going to you know, ferment it for this long. And you know, it just gives you the, the background. Uh, and then all of that information gets cycled back through the collaborative. So then when a farmer comes to us and says, look, I want to grow a bread wheat um, or I want to grow a pastry wheat, we were able to say, hey, you know, that sounds great. What are your soil types? And then they tell us and then we um, we're saying, well, you know, we, we've done this research and we've uh, we think that these three varieties grow well in your soil conditions and in your area. And uh, it will produce a pastry wheat and the bakers like the flavor and they like working with it. So um, you're able to make a better educated decision about what types of grain you want to be growing and other, you know, other factors. So being able to have a, a solid crop, be able to have a market for that crop and be able to be connected th- two different folks. So the end game for Artisan Grains Collaborative, if there is one, is to find crops that are maybe better for the soil as well? Yeah, absolutely. So even like even if you're just doing a soy and corn rotation, um, by adding a third crop in that rotation, something like rye or wheat, that will overwinter. One, you've got a cover crop on your field throughout the winter, so you're going to retain more topsoil. It's going to bring more nutrients back into the soil, and it's going to really help stave off pests and disease from a very intensive two-crop system. So just by, by adding that third crop rotation, it really is beneficial. That's another goal of ours, like, you know, more whole grain use, more whole grain growth, and then also being able to help fix a, a broken agriculture system. So it's a really, I think, special way of, of kind of thinking about it. By, by just involving everyone in the value chain, we're able to discuss about those successes and those failures and maybe come up with a better solution together. Wow, all with a loaf of bread. That's good for you. <laughs> yeah. Greg, how much is the average loaf of bread here? Um, so over at uh, Pub and Quality Meats is where we retail all of our products. Um, we're, the facility that we run actually is wholesale only, so we only sell wholesale to restaurants and uh, retailers and things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, average loaf over there is like five, six bucks. Yeah. And what would you say to someone who's like, whoa, I could find this for $1.99 at Jewel? We, we talk about the true cost of good bread. So, um, you know, the, the farmer is having to grow the wheat, the miller has to mill it, um, somebody has to deliver it, then the baker has to, we, we ferment the bread for 60 hours, and we've got a team of me plus uh, eight bakers now. Um, so, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, we, we need to make sure that all those people have a quality life, and we need to pay for it. And it's a more nutritious product, and it's definitely a more delicious product, I can guarantee you that. And it's it's better for the farmer, it's better for the soil, it's better for the local economy. And, uh, and I find that when I eat a slice of that, it's like eating five slices of the bread that's basically air. I mean, I'm so satisfied after eating it. Yeah, yeah, it's great. So, Greg, is there anything else that people should know about this movement? 
we, we personally love being a part of this community and being able to, you know, talk to folks about their successes with our bread and how much they love it and things like that. So, you know, for us, it's, it's really rewarding to be able to share this with people that, that thought that they were never going to have bread again in their life. Uh, the other thing that I want to point out is that a lot of this comes from policy. A lot of this comes from, you know, the farm bill. It takes people from, you know, the ground up demanding these things to be able to influence the way that things do uh, operationally get done in America. So a group called the Illinois Stewardship Alliance that does a lot of policy work in Springfield. Um, I'm sure other states do the same. But find those those local advocates that can help direct you and, and just sign up and just let people know, look, this is what we want. We want agriculture to provide not only better, more nutritious food, but it'll help you know change the, the landscape of America to not just be corn and soy, which is honestly kind of dangerous. B-R-E-A-D. I love bread and bread loves me. Greg Wade, head baker at Publican Quality Breads and James Beard Award winner. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you. People are writing songs about it. It's bread. Thanks to Worldview contributor Monica Ang for that interesting segment on Chicago baker Greg Wade and publican quality bread. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to chat a bit about Hong Kong and the ever-evolving protest movement and the reactions to it. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. And later this week, we're going to have some fun shows. We're going to get nature-y and go to the Chicago Botanic Garden and do a couple of shows. On Thursday, we're going to have a program about pollinators, the importance of pollinators, what you can do to help pollinators. We will talk bees, bats, butterflies, all the good things. Things that pollinate our world Thursday on Worldview, live from the Botanic Garden uh, in, in Glencoe. And then on Friday, we're going to be talking about nature and wellness from the Botanic Garden. And we'll talk about what plants do for our wellness and our well-being and our how we feel about things. So stay tuned for that later this week on Worldview. Did you know that you can listen to Worldview whenever and wherever you want? Subscribe to the Worldview podcast in the iTunes store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can go to wbez.org slash worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview.